600 acres with rich, wealthy parents who provide and protect it. And my office of relations in the politics of Maryland reacted to his deed with a shrug of his shoulders and swearing and sneering. And his tongue it was snarling. But in a matter of minutes, on bail was out walking. That was National Medal of Arts recipient Bob Dylan singing the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll in 1975's Rolling Thunder Review. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. This is the second of a two-part program that examines the music of Bob Dylan, who recently celebrated his 70th birthday. To mark the occasion, I turn to cultural historian Sean Wilentz, who is the author of the biography, Bob Dylan in America. Wilentz may be a Princeton historian, but he also has musical chops. He received a Deems Taylor Award for musical commentary and a Grammy nomination for his liner notes to Bootleg Series Volume 6, Bob Dylan, Live, 1964, The Concert at Philharmonic Hall. In Bob Dylan in America, Wilentz places Dylan's music both within the context of its time and within the stream of American culture that reaches back to the 19th century. Wilentz brings a lifetime of passion to his subject, coupled with a thorough understanding of Dylan as a cultural figure, who's deeply connected to his cultural past even as he carved out new musical territory. In part one, Sean Wilentz discussed Bob Dylan's influences, early career, and significance as an American artist. We closed with John Wesley Harding, Dylan's first album after his motorcycle accident, and one that introduced a new musical direction for him. We pick up my conversation with Sean Wilentz with Bob Dylan's 1975 Rolling Thunder Review. The Rolling Thunder Review was his attempt to put on a circus, if you will, something like a circus, he told his friend Roger McGuinn as he was getting it all together. Um, It was in 1975, and he had just recorded an extraordinary album, Blood on the Tracks, which was coming out of the pain of his life at that point. He was to go through a very difficult divorce, and lots of other things were were at him. Um, He had also studied with a a painter named Norman Rabin in New York, um, which helped change some of his ideas about time and perspective and narrative. Um, And so he'd written this album, Blood on the Tracks, and uh, it was, you know, very warmly received. People loved it, although some people criticized the musicianship on it, but never mind. Buckets of rain, buckets of tears, got all them buckets coming out of my ears. Buckets of moonbeams in my hand. You got all the love, honey, baby, I can stand. Disappear like smoke Friends will arrive Friends will disappear If you want me Honey, baby, I'll be here 
fingertips I like the way that you move your hips I like the cool way you look at me Everything about you is bringing me misery it was something of a comeback for a, a guy who's had a million comebacks, it seems. But he was in Greenwich Village, and um, he was recording the songs or writing the songs for a new album that become known as Desire. And he started picking up people, old friends, rambling Jack Elliott, Phil Oaks for a while, um, um, his friend, his sidekick Bobby Newworth, Bob Newworth. You know, the members of part of the old scene from the pre-motorcycle days, but then other new people, people who were just picking up sometimes literally off the street, like the violinist, um, the fiddler player, uh, Scarlett Rivera, or another multi-instrumentalist who had been in a band called Quacky Duck and his Barnyard Friends, with, in fact, <laughs> um, a couple of Tony Bennett's kids actually were also in this band, a guy named David Mansfield, who was an extraordinary musician. He was pulling them all together and wanted to put on a road show, going from small town to small town, you know, on the brink of the American bicentennial in 1976, he was going to go through New England, the cradle of the revolution in 1975, and go to these, you know, small towns, small venues, and put on a show. And it was going to show be a show of his new music and some of his old music with a band that the old music reconfigured, rethought, reimagined, um, but would also include Joan Baez and um, Ramblin' Jack and uh, people from the old days. And then in some of the concerts, people like Joni Mitchell. So it was a kind of all-star cast. He himself was um, playing a, quite a character. He, you talk about his, his wearing a mask. He would appear in whiteface, which is a kind of reverse of blackface. So it was a kind of um, modern minstrel or the beginnings of what would later be his modern minstrelsy. Um, but also picked up from Commedia dell'arte and particularly from a, a very important French film called uh, The Ch- Children of Paradise, probably the, the greatest French film ever made, or one of them anyway, that had come out in 1945, which he had been watching. He was interested in making a movie of, of the tour, making a movie out of the tour, which he did, a sort of incoherent movie called Ronaldo and Clara. But there he was appearing in whiteface, um, nobody quite understanding what it was all about, but giving a show, performing, and ending up giving some of the most vehement and extraordinary, I think, uh, performances of his songs, old and new, that he would ever give. And performing his heart out as, he, as few performers have done. Yeah, here's the one for you. appreciated about your book, Sean, is that it really made me think about Dylan as a performer. Good. You talk about his spontaneity as something he took from the beats and and how he can be difficult to play with because Mm. he'll change songs from night to night. Right, right. Um, It's been said by people who have played with him that you just never know what Bob Dylan's going to do. 
um, from night to night with any particular song. I, I think Dylan doesn't put too much store by any one performance. He has said even about his uh, recordings, some of which have taken some time, but most of which are recorded fairly quickly, Blonde on Blonde being an exception. Although there, even there, about half the album was recorded pretty quickly. Um, it's just to come into the studio, perform the song, get it as good as you can, get it as concise as you can, and then leave. And don't worry about it. And go on. The song will have its life on record, but also have its life as people sing it and as he sings it. So he has a very, what shall we say, um, you know, unperfectionist view of his work. Well, perfectionist, but also performative, that these are not just um, works to be read on the page or even listened to on a record. They're meant to be sung, and he is meant to sing them. And that is part of his art as well. And that leads me so beautifully to my next question, which is about his voice. Mm -hmm. It's not a conventional voice. Mm -mm. How realistic do you think he is about not just his talent as a writer, but his talent as a performer and also his limitations? Well, it's not a conventional voice if a conventional voice is Johnny Mathis or um, Tony Bennett, who have beautiful voices. His, his voice is not beautiful in that same way, although I, I still think of it as a thing of beauty. It's just not, as you say, the same as theirs. If, he may have a more ordinary voice, actually, a voice that's more common. Um, he sings better than I do, but that's another matter. But I think that he understands voice as an instrument, I mean, as, as part of what is going into making the sound that is the song. And from the very early days when he was a Woody Guthrie jukebox and, you know, kind of affecting a, an Oklahoma drawl, but since then, I think that he understands not just how the timbre of his voice can affect what he's coming across, so that a song as recorded like Lay, Lady, Lay, you know, without that kind of thought of as his Nashville skyline voice, um, the loopiness of that song and the, you know, the eros of that song wouldn't be quite as, as effective. Lay, lady, lay, lay across my big grass bed. Lay, lady, lay, lay across my big breast bed. Whatever colors you have in your mind, I show them to you, and you see them shine. Lay, lady, lay. Lay across my big breast bed Stay, lady, stay Stay with your man a while Until the break of day Let me see you make them smile but, but he'll change, and, and he'll, he's changed his voice intonation over the years. He's also very, very alert, as any great, great singer is, to phrasing, the way that he will emphasize certain words, the way he'll draw out certain phrases, and he'll change that as well from time to time. So he understands the voice as essential to his art, and although he doesn't have a, an operatic voice by any means, although he sometimes says that he can, you know, he, he sings just as well as Caruso, but I think that for his material, he's the right voice. Bob Dylan's been sung by many other people, 
And some of it has been very, very well done. Joan Baez sings some of his songs beautifully. Peter, Paul, and Mary sang some of his songs beautifully. The band sings some of his songs beautifully. Lots of people sing some of his songs beautifully. But, you know, in the end, it's Bob Dylan's version of those songs of the, that are the ones that I come back to in any case. And um, they're the ones that, that, that really are that song for me in its many different incarnations as he's changed it over the years. How about Blind Willie McTell? Is that a song for you? Oh, Blind Willie McTell is a song that I wrote a whole chapter on. Uh, Blind Willie McTell uh, is a song that Dylan wrote. It was supposed to come out in an album released in 1983 called Infidels, which was a song after his conversion to Christianity and after the more explicit, most explicit gospel albums um, that he had uh, come up with in 79 and 80. It was after that, although I don't think that the, the Christian influence ever has ever really left Dylan's work. But he wrote this song uh, about an old blues singer named Blind Willie McTell. Or it was a song that uh, is an honor, in effect, of Blind Willie McTell. Um, and McTell had come up in the 1920s and um, 1930s. Um, he was from Georgia. Uh, he played a particular kind of blues, very sweet, generous. He wasn't really a blues singer, although he sang the blues. He, he was more of a songster. He sang, sang all kinds of things. He sang Tin Pan Alley tunes. He would do a lot like Dylan, actually. He would steal from other people and make it his, his own. But he was known as a blues man, and, and, and during the blues revival uh, that came out of the folk revival of the 1960s, Willie McTell's work was rediscovered and uh, re-released, and you know, he became known. And um, songs like Statesboro Blues, which your um, listeners might know, were later picked up on by Taj Mahal and the Allman Brothers and on uh, Live at Fillmore East. I mean, Statesboro Blues is a sort of standard in the rock canon. Um, but that's Blind Willie McTell's song. So Dylan writes a song about Blind Willie McTell, but it's a song that's obviously about a lot more than Blind Willie McTell. In fact, he keeps reappearing in the song, but only with two lines in every refrain, which is, nobody can sing the blues like Blind Willie McTell. So it's a song about America, a song about being a person who sings these kinds of songs, like he does, like Bob Dylan does. Um, but it's a song about the South. It's a song about slavery. It starts back in slavery times, or goes ba- goes back to slavery times. It talks about uh, chain gangs on the highway, and gives you a, a a very strong visual imagery of of the South. But then comes back in the end to a biblical sentiment that throughout all of the world, from New Orleans all the way to Jerusalem. Um, there's nothing but power and greed and corruptible seed. That's what all that seems that, that, that seems to be there. But in the end, there is this kind of grace note that nobody can sing the blues like blind Willie McTell, that there is uh, a measure of beauty, maybe even a measure of hope in the world that is blind Willie McTell standing in for you know lots of other things. But, but blind Willie McTell is, is, is there. And uh, at the very end of the song, he's staring out the window of a hotel um, he, the singer, it's a hotel. It's not altogether clear what it is, although I'm more and more convinced that it's, the, uh, it's a very well-known rock singer's hotel in, in London. And he's looking out the window there, and just, you know, he himself, as a, an artist, looking out and just thinking, you know, how, how beautiful blind Willie McTell did it, and, and, and identifying with him, but also trying to understand the distance between him and, and McTell, the differences between him and McTell. See them big plantations burning Hear the cracking of the winds Smell that sweet magnolia blooming See the ghost of slavery still I can hear them tribes mourning 
So it's a beautiful contemplation about a lot of different things. It never ended up on the album Infidels. You know, Dylan's done this a fair amount, uh, leaving off the best songs and maybe uh, releasing them later. But there was a version, he was trying to find the song again. He'd lost the sound of it. So he sat down with Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits, who was um, one of the musicians on this record. And they just do a run-through of it uh, with Knopfler on, on guitar and Dylan on piano. And just to give Dylan back his song is a kind of demo almost. And it wasn't good enough for Dylan, but that version of it is just exquisite. I mean, in terms of the sound of it as well as the song itself, it was a beautiful rendition of it, um, the one that I think will last the longest and the one that I describe in part in that chapter. Oddly enough, Dylan released Love and Theft on September 11th, 2001. Yeah, crazy, huh? Spooky, weird. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a coincidence, but all the stranger... It's funny, I was writing um, a piece that was going to be a sort of liner notes piece that was going to be put on the web um, on BobDylan.com on his official website. They had asked me to do this, and, you know, just when I got the word to go, go down and watch TV because something, you know, horrendous had happened, you know, I sort of said, hold on, hold on, as I was putting these liner notes onto the web. It was very weird, and it was for Love and Theft, and there are songs on Love and Theft that seem almost prescient. I mean, you know, a song like High Water for Charlie Patton, um, which described coffins of falling into the street like balloons made out of lead. High water rising, rising night and day All the gold and silver being stored away Picture Turner looking east and west from the dark room of his mind He made your Kansas City, 12th Street and Vine Nothing standing there I want a Shacks are sliding down Folks lose their possessions Their folks are leaving town Bertha Mason shook it, broke it Then she hung it on the wall Say you're dancing with whom they tell you to Well, you don't dance at all It's tough out there This is being released on September 11th, 2001. Coincidence, sure, but a song of disaster, songs of disaster, songs of... And not just that, but certainly them there. I couldn't listen to it for two weeks after September 11th. I just couldn't listen to it. It's an interesting title, Love and Theft. Uh, You say Dylan stole what he loved and loved what he stole. Right. 
Right. Well, he took that title, which he put in, in quotation marks. It's not just love and theft. It's, quote, love and theft, unquote, from a book about blacks uh, face minstrelsy. I mean, he's never disowned having done so. I, he has never said he did, but I, I'm pretty sure he did, by a, a critic, um, academic critic uh, named Eric Lott, uh, about blackface minstrelsy, um, which was talking about how minstrelsy, although a form of obvious racial condescension, to say the least, not to say raw racism, um, that came out of the 1830s and 1840s in northern cities, was also an act of love and of envy for the music, for the freedom that uh, minstrelsy evoked. You know, blue noses didn't like minstrelsy. It was sort of like rock and roll in some ways. Um, it was a combination of black and white music um, that was, you know, very different and offended a lot of people, but really came alive at a particular time. And it involved white performers blacking their faces and with cork, burnt cork, and uh, appearing as if they were in the sort of grotesque version of what black people were like, but then performing songs that were really quite astonishingly beautiful very often. Um, and by the time Stephen Foster, um, the great American composer, is writing for the minstrel stage, some of them are you know, going to become classics in American culture. So Dylan, in effect, is a minstrel in this record. And I think that's one of the reasons why he, he, he used that title. Not a blackface minstrel. Um, he'd already been a whiteface minstrel. But a person who took music, not just the music of African Americans or of slaves uh, or even of the blues and, and later black music, but from all around American culture, all around American song. He, he'd later be experimenting with Bing Crosby's songs and others to try and do what he'd always done, which is taking these, being this alchemist, taking these other things and making them something new, but I think in a more comprehensive or conscientious or compact kind of way, really being quite direct about it, creating something new out of something old, creating something of his own out of other people's things, creating a, a style, if you will, a, a variation on his style that I did call mo modern minstrelsy. You could see it uh, taking shape as early as the mid-1990s and then in the 1997 album Time Out of Mind. But it is, uh, became clear, absolutely clear, on Love and Theft, which I do think is one of Dylan's great albums, and um, has remained very much part of his songwriting since. Well, one thing he certainly has made his own is his radio show. Because if anybody has ever heard it on Sirius XM, Theme Time Radio Hour, I think it's fair to say you've never heard anything like it. Uh, yeah, you know, props to, uh, to to XM, Sirius XM Radio, for having done all of that, because it allowed Bob Dylan to innovate in a whole different way. You know, Dylan knows every inch of American music, popular music anyway, and a good deal about classical music. And he got the idea of doing a radio show, which would be in part, well, which in part would allow him to play music that people didn't hear very much, um, music that isn't, you know, normally played on the radio, blues music, Tin Pan Alley music, all sorts of things. And to group them thematically, so you'd have... Uh, you know, a show on baseball or a show on drinking or what have you. But in this, at the same time, create this fantasy world, um, very much sounding as if it comes out of the noirish 1940s or 19, well, 1940s, 1950s. He makes up a, a place where this is being broadcast from, the historic Abernathy building um, <laughs> near Samson's Diner and, you know, uh, all the rest of it. And, and on the show, he will break up the songs. He will actually give you lectures about the songs, many lectures to inform you. So he's being an archivist. He's, he's being a teacher in some ways. But then they'll be interrupted with quiz, startling facts, like what is the windiest city in, in America? Right, and you might think that it's Chicago because Chicago is the windy city. Turns out there are th at least three cities that are windier, and he gives you the names. Sioux City is one of them. He'll give you the best recipe for making a mint julep. 
Right? He will you know, give you odd history facts about you know, the youngest soldier to die during the Civil War. He's always got history in there. It's, it's a bit like reading an old you know, family newspaper, maybe like reading Grit or something from the old days, from that same kind of period, in which you're being given all kinds of you know, useful, useless information at random, although he would always have them tied to the themes of the show. So it was an extraordinary three seasons of radio in which you learned a lot about music, in which Bob Dylan, and, and Bob Dylan was never out of character. I mean, you always knew that he, he was he. He'd be referring to friends and so forth, and every once in a while his own experiences. But it was Bob Dylan as DJ rather than Bob Dylan as the masked minstrel. And boy, did he pull it off well, I thought. I mean, I have recordings of all of those in, in one place in my study back in Princeton, New Jersey, And um, they are precious to me. I love them. I listen to them all the time. Bob Dylan's been making music for over 50 years. He's still doing at least 100 gigs a year. Yeah, about 100 dates a year. What do you think makes Dylan endure? Well, I think that he's grown, you know, he's, you know, he's grown up, as it were, or he's, he, he hasn't, people don't go to him to see an oldie show. Some critics, some writers, try to place him in aspect so they imagine Bob Dylan only the Bob Dylan of the 1960s. Uh, or maybe the Bob Dylan of the of the Christian period or whatever. Um, but Bob Dylan has evolved and grown, and his writing over the last 10, 15 years has grown with it. It's the writing of an older man, writing with that peculiar mixture of defiance and vulnerability that marked his early work, but are songs that he could never have written when he was 20 years old. Um, he did have the ability to sound like an old man when he was young, but a song uh-huh. like Not, Not Dark Yet, or, or even Summer Days or any of the things on, 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 on Love and Theft, which talk about what it's like to be an older man who still has something going on, but, you know, is not what he was. Um, you know, this is, this is something that people want to hear, want to listen to. He's still writing beautiful songs, and he's still performing them in ways that are quirky, ways that are odd, that are not to everybody's taste, that are better some nights than others but are certainly highly theatrical and certainly effective. So he's going to stay out on the road as long as there's a road for him to stay on. That was Sean Wilentz. He's the author of the biography, Bob Dylan in America. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from today's songs were all written and performed by Bob Dylan and used courtesy of Sony Music Entertainment. Each song was used by permission of Jeff Rosen and Special Writer Music. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, we look at Youngblood, the theater group for playwrights under 30. To find out how Artworks in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Where do you go? Sorry, that's enough that you would need to know. Well, my back's been to the wall so long, it seemed like it's stuck. Why don't you break my heart one more time, just for good love? Walking the bus be someone around